Well, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Did everybody uh, see that Dwayne and Lynette are back? That's a good thing, isn't it? We have been praying for you guys, and quite frankly, we're tired of praying for you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're glad that you are well enough to be here, and we will keep, continue to pray for you. It's never a burden, never a hardship, and I shouldn't make fun of it, but I just did, so I am so sorry. So excuse my voice, I've got that cold that's going around, and, and uh, it's, uh, it's what we have this morning. Uh, we're going to be using the next uh, several weeks leading up to Easter, talking through a certain portion of Scripture, and it's found in a certain letter in a certain portion of the New Testament, in a letter written by, uh, we don't know for sure, and uh, we're going to spend six weeks on, on faith and faithfulness and on some stories that the writer draws out of this chapter to encourage the people. And uh, so Sharon and I will be working on that, and Alicia has a part in this series as well, and she's going to be speaking. And uh, I just say that to start the anxiety train. And uh, <laughs> so uh, away we go. I <laughs> uh, had a good dinner on Friday night with uh, community and it was fun, and as Marcy mentioned, we had a, a good work day yesterday, and a lot of, a lot of good things uh, were accomplished. So, uh, sure glad to have you here this morning. Sure glad that you're here. Like, like we keep on saying this spring, uh, when you're not here, you're missed, because we're a family. And when the family is separated, we recognize it. You bring a, a part that nobody else does, so your presence is, is highly valued here. Now, we're going to start with a little uh, video in just a second. And uh, December 17th, 1903, two brothers, Orville and Wilbur, made some history, didn't they? And in spite of the fact that this contraption that they built, without pilots in it, weighed 604 pounds, you'll see through a, through a con catapult contraption, and this little internal combustion engine that they had put on there, in spite of it being 604 pounds, before the pilots got in, the thing actually flew. Unbelievable. I mean, it's still, how did that thing get off the ground? It defied gravity. It ascended. Yet, the idea wasn't a new idea. And Zach, if you'd show that these two guys, they, they became known globally, but the idea wasn't a new idea. In fact, years before Orville and Wilbur decided to do this and take it to Kitty Hawk and fire it up, mathematicians and scientists had proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that flight was possible. Yet people who would read the findings of the mathematicians and, and scientists and and engineers, even though that they had read it and studied it, they still couldn't quite believe that flight was possible, and much less was anybody willing to strap themselves into something like that and go for a little ride. Dwayne, it probably looks pretty good to you, doesn't it? Yep. No one was in a hurry to strap themselves in. Of all the people that had studied the facts and believed the facts, who would have faith to get in the pilot seat? 
whose faith would be strong enough to even attempt this? And it was the Wright brothers who, once they believed in the facts, it motivated their faith. They built it and they flew it. And when this aircraft flew, you know, it didn't, it didn't prove their brilliance. Rather, it, it proved their faith in the math, in the science behind it. And they believed that something the world had never seen before might actually be possible. Now, a dictionary defines faith uh, in awfully generic terms, and, and here are some of them. The first is a sincerity about what you believe. Sounds good. Point one, the assent of the mind to what someone has said. Now, the Wright brothers did that. Second, the firm and earnest belief based on probable evidence. Well, they had studied the facts. They looked things over. Third, a settled conviction in regard to religious belief. Yeah, my faith, uh, settled conviction. And fourth, what a person believes on any given subject, science, or religion. And again, for the next six weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look at the, the, this tiny little slice of the Bible, of New Testament scripture. And it's written by a letter, or written in a letter, by one of the early church fathers, from what people tell us. He was a, an early mover and shaker in the church movement as it was taking off. And even though the author is not named in his own book, they know that it wasn't Paul who wrote this because Paul always said, hi, this is from Paul, when he would start a letter. But this person remains unnamed. But a church father by the name of Tertullian was writing a letter of his own, and he pulled a portion of this letter out to include in the letter he was writing. And he cited the author as they knew it back then in 200 A.D. He attributed this portion of the scripture to an epistle to the Hebrews under the name of Barnabas. That guy, Paul's friend. And it makes really good sense because this writer has a comprehensive knowledge of the history and the traditions and the practices and the prophecies of the Jewish people. And you would think in a letter that's titled Hebrews, he's writing to Hebrews. Right, very good. And the content of the letter, what he's writing is directed to people, men and women, who've been raised in a Jewish faith. They are Christians. They believe in, in Christ. They may have witnessed the resurrection. Some of them may have personally known Jesus. But now, they're going through a bit of a struggle. They're having a hard time because they're experiencing persecution. And not just the persecution that, that we would expect. And they're having to ask themselves, and, and they're searching their, their minds and, and uh, wondering about a couple of questions. They're, they're kind of at a crossroads, and they're saying, should we return to our old Jewish faith since Jesus was the Messiah? Or should we side with the people who keep chasing us from church to church saying, no, 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 you can believe in Christ, but you have to lay all the Old Testament law over the top of that. That's part of the deal. And if they're refusing this, they're catching persecution from fundamentalist Jewish people, the faith that they came out of. 
And this is the question. Do we go back to our Jewish roots full on, or do we take this halfway approach and, 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 and bring the law with us into our belief in Christ, who said there's really just love God and love others? How do we, how, how do we handle it? How do we make this kind of decision? And the writer, to present his facts and his findings in a perspective that a Jewish audience can understand, he lays out a chain of evidence He's going to go back and give Old Testament testimonies as to what God has been doing all along and how this all fits together in Christ. That it's all interconnected. It's all interrelated. And you may not have noticed it, but watch how beautifully this fits together, he's telling him. And his correction, as he writes, isn't in a way that's intended to be argumentative. He writes it in a way that's meant to be inspiring and encouraging. It's kind of like uh, having that most wonderful secret and you can't wait to share it with people. He says, you know, these promises that were part of our Old Testament scripture, the prophecies, all those things that we have trusted in, all those parts of the old agreement that we had with God, the old covenant, are perfectly fulfilled in a new covenant, in the person of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And he is both the Jewish Messiah and the world's Savior. Now, these first-generation Christians that come from a Jewish faith that are living in the major cities around the Mediterranean world, they find themselves smack in the middle of persecution. And if you remember from the book of Acts, do you remember how many times that we would find that, that Paul would go to a city and there were fundamentalist Jews in that city saying, no, 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 it's got to be this way, got to be this way, got to be this way, got to be this way. Some of them actually beat him, stoned him, messed him up. So they're facing persecution from fundamentalist Jews demanding that they conform to temple law. And on the other side is the oppression that comes from the empire. Caesar, his minions. And we see that all through the book of Acts too. So here are these new believers that have come out of a Hebrew faith. They have Jews on one side persecuting. They have the Romans on the other side persecuting. And this is what the writer says at the end of Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> he said, remember those earlier days after you had received the light? When you endured a great conflict full of suffering? After you began to understand what the message of the, the Christ was all about, the Messiah and, and Son of God, and how he suffered and bled and died, and he fulfilled prophecy. Do you remember when you first, when the lights first came on? You believed. You believed, and you suffered for your belief. Said so sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Said so you've had to endure your share of nastiness. Simply by believing in Jesus. You've endured it from the fundamentalist Jews 
who follow you from city to city and cause trouble. And you face it at the hands of the Romans who are torturing believers and imprisoning believers at the direction of the emperor. He said, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. You were, jail- you were put in jail. I mean, this is such a foreign concept for us who live in the United States, isn't it? You were jailed for your allegiance to Christ. And even when they confiscated every possession you owned, you accepted it with joy. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. When when is the last time that we realized that our life in Christ was better than any possession we could ever own? Serious. As I was praying through this this week, I I was reminded of the, the hymn, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And when you lay that over the top of your own life, and you start reciting the words. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Do I live, do I live that way? Am I meaning what I'm singing? And these believers, the writers reminding them excuse me (coughs) sorry you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions you know what you have is better than what you lost and many of them had had friends who had lost their life for their belief And he's meaning to be encouraging. And he's, he's kind of saying, even, even though you're tired, even though you may feel like you stand at a crossroads, he says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. In spite of that, in spite of the suffering, in spite of the confiscation of your property, in spite of your weariness, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Now, would you repeat this with me? Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Let's do this again. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Because his... His audience is so steeped in their Hebrew faith, in their tradition, in Scripture. The author says, yeah, I, I don't want to downgrade what you're going through right now, but, but let me take you back 
to some of your forefathers who suffered. And he goes back and he cites one of the, the last Hebrew prophets, a man by the name of Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk was a prophet about the same time as Jeremiah and Isaiah. And this is right at the leading edge when the empire of Babylon had started across the desert in a methodical wave and were swallowing up kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, working their way toward the Mediterranean coast. And the message of the prophet and the message of God through the prophet was this, stand firm, be patient. That's hard to do with the enemy at the gate, isn't it? Really hard to do. And as I think of Sharon who lost her mom and Marcy's mom uh, not thriving, how do, we, how do we stand firm and be patient? How do we do that? And the writer of Hebrews says the same thing to his audience. He says, you know, hang in there. It won't be easy. And we can't see what God is doing. But he's doing something. God isn't silent. Sometimes we just can't hear. Sometimes we can't see what he's doing. And this is what Habakkuk said to the readers six centuries earlier. He said, for the revelation, this thing that we want to know, the, the revelation, the revealing of God's plan, what are you up to, God? Well, he's not showing us now. Habakkuk says, the revelation that we are so desperate to see come to light awaits an appointed time. All this stuff we want to know, it, it's coming, but God has set a time for it. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So these are people who are getting this word from God as the enemy approaches. And the message is wait, linger, it's coming. It will not delay, meaning it's on God's time schedule. When it gets here, it will be perfect. Habakkuk is saying, God has set the time for our deliverance. And then God speaks. He said, see, the enemy, the Babylonians, the Babylonian empire is puffed up. His desires are not upright, the empire. But the righteous person will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives, takes captive all the people. It's a perfect description of the Babylonian Empire and their ruthlessness and their, their practices of, in warfare. But, you know, it's also a perfect description of the Roman Empire, too. That's why the writer cites it. He's saying, look, look, people of the church, you are not the first to have it bad. You're not the first to face persecution. You're not the first to have your possessions taken. 
You're not the first to be beaten. You're not the first to feel the wrath of an oppressor. And the writer of Hebrews says, yet you need to persevere. Just like Habakkuk told our forefathers, we need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Same thing that the prophet said 600 years earlier. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure, God says, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Something really curious in here. When Habakkuk talks, 600 years before Christ, when God talks about the righteous, he talks about the righteous. When the writer of Hebrews says it, he says, my righteous. Through Christ is a whole new kind of righteousness. Through Christ is a whole new kind of salvation. It isn't just obeying the rules. It isn't just temple practices. It is through the shed blood of Christ that we are forgiven and saved. And Christ makes us righteous. And when he talks about God's plan, Habakkuk said, be patient, it will come. But the writer of Hebrews says something different. He says, he will come. Christ will return. He will return. Be patient. Wait. Be steadfast. Don't shrink back from your faith. Jesus is coming. But just like earlier, it's on God's schedule. So if we have to endure this, we will. And in one of the greatest locker room speeches ever, ever given, the writer says this, but we... But we, Christian, do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Let's repeat that. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We don't, be we don't belong to this wishy-washy old nature of ours. We have been convinced. We have been cleansed. We know we are sons and daughters of God. We know this. We can deal with hardship. You know, our Christian faith will not be measured by how much persecution it took to break us. And in a real sobering thought, you know, our brothers and sisters, our fellow believers, then and our fellow believers today still are choosing death over denial. They would rather die than abandon their faith. So great is their faith. The writer says, hey, 
we are the people who refuse to shrink back in the face of discouragement. We refuse to shrink back when the surrounding culture offends us. We refuse to shrink back in the face of evil. He says, faith does not call us to a life of leisure. It calls us to a life of self-sacrifice. And yeah, we will be weary. We will get discouraged. But like our Jesus, like our Jesus, we will keep on going the extra mile. We will keep on turning the other cheek. We will love God, love others, and serve the world. Just like our Jesus. Like our Jesus. One of the most disturbing things to me about a politicized church that we're seeing emerging in our time is this idea that Christians should not have to suffer. Yet the first generation Christians, they believed knowing that it would require suffering. They marched right into it. They didn't deny it. They didn't say, well, when it gets so hard, we're just going to find a, an exit and, uh, you know, there's one. We can just quietly slip out of the room. They didn't do that. They believed knowing what was coming. Why did they do it? Why did they say it was worth it anyway? Because they knew that they had better and lasting possessions in Christ. Worth more than anything they might lose, including their own lives. And it is still happening. People are dying for what we take so casually. We need to esteem our faith. We need to give our faith a voice. Now, the, the Wright brothers, they flew in 1903, but you know, 1902 was an awfully good year for them. Really good year. In that one year alone, 1902, they had made almost a thousand successful flights trying out this new airplane. The only one we know about is the one that happened in front of cameras. So this flight that they make on the world stage that looks, oh my goodness, what has happened here? The world is forever changed. Yeah, they've been doing it. This was just showbiz. But that flight that we have on, on film had been built on thousands of other incremental steps of faith. Believing the facts, trusting the science, and trying it for themselves. Then the writer says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. They, they should have painted that on the side of their airplane. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Then he says, this is what the ancients were commended for. 
This is what the patriarchs of our faith, this is what the, those giants of the Jewish nation were all about. And so we get to spend the next few weeks looking at the lives of these people, these men and women who are cited in Scripture that lived extraordinary, faithful lives. The writer, again, he doesn't say this, say this in order to say, well, live like this guy. He's saying it to encourage them, to inspire them, to say this life is possible and you can live it. We are so fortunate to be sons and daughters of God. How is your faith? Are you confident in your hope? Are, are you sure of things that you cannot see? Think about your life and where it stands right now. I uh, served with a pastor in Salem for a little bit, and, and I was discouraged, and, and uh, so we talked for a bit. He gave me the best piece of advice. He said, he said, now, Jim, don't judge your life by where you stand. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. And you think about the last 25 years of your life. You tell me what God has done. You look at how he has been faithful. He said, Jim, can you show me one time where your trust in God let you down? Or where God let you down? These are incredible days for our church, for the church. We're faced with so many challenges culturally, sociologically, uh, service-wise. But that's where innovation happens. That's where revival happens. That's where it's fun to be together as a family. That's where it's so great to have us encouraging each other in our faith and reminding ourselves of how good God is. Let's pray. Father God, we proclaim that we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. God, we do not want to ask you for an easier road. Father, we want to know the assurance that you are walking with us down the hard roads. God, there are days when uh, you seem distant. And then there are days where you seem ever-present so close, like a cloak. Like a down jacket. Like we are surrounded by you. Father, we pray that as we examine these uh, stories of faith, that we would examine our own story of faith. Have we been quick to cut and run or have we been diligent 
Have we been looking for an easy way out or an easier way out? And the avoidance of conflict and persecution. Or has just knowing that you would be there and walking with us, has that been enough? Father, we, we want your life, eternal life, to be the thing that sustains us, to be the thing that we crave more than any, anything else. We want to know the joy of that lasting possession. Father, we do acknowledge that your timing is perfect. You have never been late. So God, uh, encourage us in these days. If we are suffering, help us to bear it. If we are suffering, help us to share it with our, our friends here in the church. Father, if we're suffering, help us to swallow our pride and ask for help. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your provision for us. And most spectacular of all is right at the front of this room with the bread and the cup that represent Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. That his life and his death were the perfect atonement for every stupid thing I've ever done, every sin I've ever committed. And through his sacrifice and through that atonement, I am your child. And Father, through his resurrection, I too will see resurrection. Father, for all these good things, we give you honor and praise. We are so thankful to be in your service and to be used of you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.